gospel now. So please open up to Mark chapter 8, and we're going to start reading at verse 22 through to verse 33 today. So Mark 8 from verse 22. Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Now Jesus and his disciples went out, uh, went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must, be, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not mindful of the things of men, or things of God, but the things of men. Let's pray before we study this together. Lord God, thank you for your word, which we can read so clearly in words we understand. Lord God, as we come to study it together today, we pray that your spirit would reveal the truths of it to us, that it might not be a case of the blind leading the blind. We pray that you would grow us, reveal more of your truths to us, and equip us for every work that you have in store for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we are obviously kicking on through Mark's gospel this morning. And uh, we are one sermon short of the halfway point. Now, as we look at the verses that we've just read uh, in this passage here, you might be wondering why we have a few things joined together in our reading today. We could have stopped a little bit sooner. Uh, perhaps it would have made more sense that we had just read about Jesus healing this blind man at Bethsaida. And then next week we deal with the conversation which Peter seems to be the spokesperson for the apostles. Now I don't want to give it away less than a minute into the sermon, but I hope it makes sense while we are dealing with all of these uh, three uh, sections as the New King James has broken it out all in the one go. But as we start off, we picked up in verse 22. And we see Jesus has moved to a town, a place called Bethsaida. And many of Jesus' miracles are recorded in multiple Gospels. That's uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Uh, what we see today is something which is unique to Mark's Gospel. This is actually recorded in the other Gospels. And each of the Gospels have little things that are unique to them. And this is just one which is unique to Mark. Now... Something I'm aware of is that many of you like to know the precise geographical location that Jesus was at when he uh, went around ministering to people. It's often helpful to have a Bible with a map at the back of it and be able to go pinpoint that's exactly where Jesus was. Now, with the town of Bethsaida, archaeologists, geologists, all those people, they put their heads together. There's records of this place existing. 
But the exact location of this place isn't one of what we'd call settled academic opinion, which means the scholars are having fisticuffs about it. Don't know exactly where it is, but what we do know is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus has moved. Last week he was on the western shore of this inland sea. Now he's at the northern end of this inland sea. And there's a few things that we saw last week that do carry over into this week. One of the things that we saw last week was the importance of believing that Jesus is God. To have our sin dealt with by God, we must believe that Jesus is God. Without that, there is no way that our sin can be dealt with. Last week, we saw that the disciples of Christ aren't there yet. They're not there yet. I said last week that wouldn't happen until uh, they got to the day of Pentecost where the Spirit would give them this realisation of all these things. For some people, a realisation of the things of God comes quickly. For others, it comes slowly. I'm going through all of this as we set the scene. Because as we come to this town of Bethsaida, we begin to see what I would consider to be an enacted lesson that flows into the discussion that follows. There's a link here between the healing in stages and the discussion where Peter seems to be the spokesperson for the apostles immediately following this as Jesus and the disciples head on to Caesarea Philippi and the towns around there. So we are still back at the start, though. We are back at verse 22. And the way Mark's written this, it's almost as if we're entering into this town called Bethsaida with Christ. We're going in. This is a setting. We're going into this town with Jesus, and we're greeted by a, a familiar scene. A familiar scene of people knowing that Jesus is a healer, a, a miracle worker, this guy who does things that are otherwise impossible for everybody else. And, and they come to him. And some people come because they can physically get there themselves. Other people are brought. We read of this blind man who is brought to Jesus. And when he is brought to Jesus, he, he, he begs Jesus to touch him, to just touch him. Jesus takes this man, takes him away from the crowd, takes him out of the city to a quiet place where he's about to do something with him. It's a healing. As we saw a couple of weeks ago with the, with the deaf man who was also mute, there's some things that take place here that we might not necessarily consider uh, medical hygiene today when it comes to healing. I'm glad when I was with the uh, ophthalmologist on Tuesday that before he did anything with my eyes that he had gloves on. He didn't spit on his fingers and didn't put that finger he just spat on in my eye. But what we see here today is Jesus spitting and touching somebody's eyes. Now, again, it's not a weird, gross thing that happens. Today, don't spit and then touch people's injuries. Don't do it. But it was a sign here that there was a healing about to take place. It was a signal that healing was in process. And what we see here in verses 22 through to verse 26 is a different healing than what we've seen before. Now Jesus touches this guy's eyes and Jesus says to this man, what do you see? 
You know, I see people moving around, but they look a bit like trees. He's not seeing clearly yet. So Jesus repeats this process and says, what do you see now? The guy could see clearly. It's a fairly straightforward account that Mark tells us here. So it's exactly what happened. It finishes, however, with Jesus telling this guy, don't go back into the town and don't tell people in the town what has just happened here. Now we'll deal with that a little bit more later. As we look at this, this might be surprising to us. It might be confusing to us because when we have seen Jesus heal people, we might be getting used to what we might call a stock standard healing of Jesus. Yes, it might involve, as we heard in the kids' talk, the kids remembered this stuff, Jesus either touching somebody or saying that they were healed. It has sometimes involved the spit as well, but the result is an immediate healing. What we have here is it's a two-step process. It might be confusing. And Mark doesn't tell us why it's a two-step process. And like pretty much everything that's left without a clear, a clear answer given for it in the Bible, there's a whole heap of research you can find on this topic. There are a whole heap of ideas that people have as to why Jesus did this. Because sometimes our minds just don't like the fact that this is just what happened. We don't like it. We have to have the answers. We have to figure it all out. A brilliant theologian. We've heard of him, John Calvin. Brilliant mind, wrote many years ago, paraphrase a little bit, partly because I can't read the original French, uh, Jesus healed like this to show that he could do any number of healings in any number of ways. There wasn't a limit to what Jesus could do. There wasn't a limit to how Jesus could go about doing things. He's not the sort of person we get bored with. He's not the sort of person we get bored of. So this is a healing. It's a process. It doesn't happen straight away. There's two steps involved in it. Jesus tells this guy who now has his sight back, don't get back into the town, don't tell people in the town what's happened. And he and his disciples head off down the road to a place called uh, Caesarea Philippi. Mark tells us they went to the towns around Caesarea Philippi. They didn't actually go into this main city itself. And this is where some big Big things happen in Mark's gospel. Uh, The first part of Mark 9, there is an especially major event that takes place uh, still in this area. We're going to be in this geographic region for a little bit. But this town of Caesarea Philippi, which was big enough to have lots of villages, smaller towns around it, was a town that had been built to honour a previous Roman Caesar as a god or at least a demigod in the Roman pantheon of their false gods. This is a significant location for the discussion that is about to happen and the things that are about to happen, particularly at the start of chapter 9, to take place. Now, we may not be aware of this, but there are many times in the Gospels that Jesus will use specific geographic locations that the people of the time knew about to make his point clearer. Uh, One example I can give you is that under the mountain where Jesus was teaching about the gates of hell not prevailing against the kingdom of God, which is a theological truth that is true no matter where he said it, underneath that mountain was a cave known to the local citizens as the gates of hell. 
I believe this was one of the spots where the uh, citizens of Hades could escape if Hades and his three-headed dog Cerberus were asleep on the job. He used something which the locals knew about and were familiar with to build the truth of God, to counter those things with things that were actually true, not just mythology. Going into this town of Caesarea Philippi, it's important to note, this is where Jesus is going when he asks the disciples, who am I? It's a crucial question. Jesus has claimed to be God. Jesus has laid claim to being God in human flesh. It's heading to this town, honouring a man as a God that Jesus says to his disciples, who do you think I am? And we saw last week the disciples don't believe yet. Yet is a crucial word there. Sometimes belief grows slowly and doesn't hit all at once. Sometimes people are brought to a point of just believing suddenly, as I said. Anna and I both grew up in Christian families. Anna can remember a time where she was saved, almost down to the second it happened. I grew up in a Christian family as well. I don't know the exact moment I was saved, but I know that I'm saved. Happens at different times and different paces for different people. There's no cookie-cutter testimony that we have among Christians where everything is identical. God deals with us all differently. So again, we're heading to Caesarea Philippi. This town is significant to have in the backs of our minds when Jesus asks, who do men say that I am? Now, we know Jesus is about to put the apostles on the spot with, who do you think that I am? He's sort of leading them in here a little bit. You go straight to, who do you think that I am? That can be a little bit confronting, can't it? He's easing them into the discussion. Who do people say that I am? Now, you might remember when uh, Herod was asking these questions when he heard about Jesus. Who is this guy? And people's responses were, it's John the Baptist, it's Elijah, it's one of the prophets. You get the same answers here from the disciples. They go, well, people have been saying these things about you. People think you're either John the Baptist back from the dead, you're Elijah, or one of the other prophets. Now, they're not right, except that the prophets came from God. So in that sense, they're beginning to be on the right track, but they're, they're missing the point of who Jesus is. We see that people haven't quite got it yet, but they begin to understand that God is behind what Jesus is doing. So close, but, but no cigar, so to speak. And then Jesus puts on the spot, who do you say that I am? And we get this response from Peter. And Peter seems to be the spokesperson for the apostles in what happens here. Now, in the the next tiny little bit, with Jesus predicting his death and resurrection, we see Peter pull Jesus aside, begin to rebuke him. Jesus turns around, looks at his disciples and speaks to them collectively. It seems through all these verses here, Peter is acting as a spokesperson for the group of the apostles. But he's also the one who probably struggles most with that chronic illness that I have, a foot and mouth disease. And he speaks up first. He speaks up and he says, you are... The Christ. You are the Christ. That is the exact right answer. It's the right answer. But he's got the wrong idea about who and what the Christ, or not the who, but the what the Christ is. And this is, I think, is why we should be linking this to the healing of the blind man in Bethsaida, because things sometimes come in stages. Peter's understanding is that Jesus is the Christ. That is correct. 
And again, Jesus says, don't tell people about this yet. Why don't tell people about this? Why keep this under wraps? Again, we're not exactly sure. We begin to understand that the more people hear this, the more they're going to either respond positively or the more the religious leaders are going to try and crack down on this, hastening Jesus going to the cross. More people need to hear and see Jesus. He's not putting a damper on people spreading the word of him because he's ashamed of himself or anything that he has done. He wants people to see and hear him before the right time comes. Peter goes, you are the Christ. You are the one who is going to save our people. You are the one who is going to free Israel. You are the one who we have been waiting for for generations and centuries to come. We see that in verses 29 and 30. And then straight after that, Jesus basically says in verse 30, he doesn't tell them that Peter's wrong. He doesn't correct him. He accepts Peter's declaration that he is a Christ. Jesus then begins to say in verses 31 to 33, that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And in three days rise again. It's not the news Peter wanted to hear. Jesus tells him, the Son of Man, in a title from the book of Daniel, referring to God's own Son, who is the Messiah, is going to be rejected by the religious, by the social, by the legal rulers of Israel. They would all want absolutely nothing to do with the Son of Man. He would be killed by these people. It's not just simple rejection of we don't like him, let's just turn a blind eye to him. It's we don't like him, let's kill him. That is what the Son of Man is going to face. That's not what Peter signed up for, though. That's not what Peter thought he was saying when he said, Jesus, you are the Christ. When Peter said, Jesus, you're the Christ, he probably had in mind, you're the one who is going to start a revolution among the Israelites, who is going to rise up, who is going to beat the snot out of the Romans, give us back our country, then we're going to take back the land that we had when Solomon was king, we're going to beat the snot out of every single person we meet on the road, and I'm going to be right by your side along the way because I'm one of the twelve. Conquest, revolution, power, glory, that was what Peter was thinking, and there is power and glory here that is not what Peter was thinking. And Peter, who is this apostle for being super relatable? I think he's just so relatable as we see his character and more as we get into the start of chapter 9 with that transfiguration of Christ. Oh, let me build you a house. Let me build you a tent. What's, what's that going to do at that point in time? He just says things that I just find I would probably be saying in the situation. But Jesus says, you know, you've identified me correctly as a Christ. This is who the Christ is, is. This is what the Christ is really going to do. It's not what you expect, but this is going to happen. And Peter, in his mind, he can't get past this. He doesn't want to have a bar of it. And Jesus, in verse 32, he said these things openly. So Peter says, well, we don't want word of this getting out. People might not join us. 
the revolution might die before we can get people to join us if you keep saying this, Jesus. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to pull you aside, Jesus, after just telling you you're the Christ. I'm going to pull you aside and try and rebuke you. Now you might go, that Peter, what are you doing? Now, how many times have we seen God do things or heard of God's promises and gone, well, maybe not how I would have done it. Maybe you could have done something a little bit quicker, God. Maybe you could have done it a little bit easier for me. Well, why is this going to happen? See, Peter's response here is actually one I think we've wrestled with ourselves when we read of God in the Bible. Try and take God aside and try and rebuke him for that. It's astounding, isn't it? Yeah, Peter's idea that Christ was the Messiah, again, 100% correct, but his idea of what the Messiah was going to do was just so wrong. There would be freedom through the Messiah. There would be salvation through the Messiah, but not from the Romans, against sin. Jesus, the Messiah, he came for a reason. And he came to fight something far more sinister than the Roman Empire. We often hear of the Roman Empire being this bastion of civilization, but there were some pretty horrific things that took place in the Roman culture, weren't there? Absolutely horrific things. You read commentaries on, on Paul's work of Galatians and you get this huge contrast as to, and particularly in Ephesians as well, of um, the way fathers would treat their sons as opposed to how God treats us as his children. There's horrific things in the Roman Empire. But Jesus didn't come just to fight that. He came to fight sin, which was far, far more horrific. And to conquer sin, Jesus had to die. He had to go to the cross. He had to be rejected. He had to suffer. He had to die. And this was the ultimate mission. This was the ultimate mission that God had given to him. Jesus knew this when he came down to earth. And yes, while Jesus was born as a baby, you might hear, particularly from the early 2000s, an English pastor tried to say this was a case of cosmic child abuse. That is wrong. Jesus knew what was before him. And he still went there willingly. His mission was to go to the cross. And Satan would have loved nothing more than for that to not happen. Like in Mark 2 with the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. It all boiled down to Satan trying to give Jesus an easy way out. Don't keep doing what you're doing. Have this easy option instead. No, don't go where the cross where I know you're going to go. Have this easy power instead. False promises. But Satan would have loved nothing more for Jesus to have just been accepted and loved and never put to death by the leaders of the time. Satan would love nothing more than to stop God's plan. And it's because Peter, having heard that Jesus is going to die, says, no, don't do that. We're going to stop that from happening. Because of that, that Jesus is right. It is a harsh but a fair thing to say, while also looking at all of the apostles. They all seem to be of one mind in this. Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about godly things. You're thinking about the things of man. It's harsh, but it's fair and it's serious. We see here Peter is beginning to show evidences, and I'd say the apostles with him are beginning to show evidences of belief. It's starting, but the belief isn't quite right yet. But there's a beginning of responsiveness to the gospel of Christ. 
It would wait for Pentecost for, for fullness of belief, but they seem to be on the way. For anyone here who, who doesn't have faith and it hasn't come quickly, don't think you could never be saved because it doesn't come immediately. We shouldn't think that. And for those of us here who have been saved from sin because we don't trust ourselves but we trust Jesus because he was faithful to what God assigned him to do and because he was God incarnate, we know that we are only saved because of Jesus. Because Jesus was suffered, because Jesus was rejected, because Jesus died, he went through the most horrific thing for us. It's astounding. It's a guy who once again has healed somebody who he had no knowledge of before. Had never met this guy before, but he healed him. This is Jesus who has healed countless people. Jesus who has done nothing but show kindness and compassion. He is not the one who deserves to die. As we consider what Christ did for us, we realise that we, that I should be the one who is rejected. No, I should be the one who is made to suffer, that I should be the one to die for my sin. I should have gone to the cross for my sin, but you know what? There's a message of hope of somebody who can actually do it for us, and Jesus did it for us. And sometimes we don't like that. Sometimes we think it's condescending when someone offers to pay the bill for us. No, let me pay my way. But we can't. We should be aware of what Christ was about to face. We should be aware of the horrors that were before him. And we should be aware that he did this knowingly. Now, Peter seemed to get a bit worked up and he missed something really important in there, though, didn't he? The Son of Man would die, but after three days he would rise again. There is a hope of resurrection with God. We're looking at this from the other side of the cross, but as we look at this, we should just be thankful that Jesus did this, that he came that he lived, that he taught, that he healed, that he died for us. And we should try to see things the way that God would have us see things, not the way the people around us do. That was what Peter's trap he fell into in the apostles. But what does that mean? It's easier to say we should know things, that we should think of things the way God does rather than the way people do. But what does that mean? Well, it means beginning to know God. God is infinite and eternal and unchanging. There is so much to God that we could never, ever fully know. But what we have in the Bible is beautiful and amazing. Uh, Rick Zilstra, who is one of my mentors, I think reveals his uh, TV watching habits, said, think of the Bible as NCIS. It's necessary. It's clear. It's infallible. And it's sufficient has everything we need to know about God. It's necessary for all we need to know about God. It is clear we can read it and we can understand it. It's infallible. There are no mistakes in it. It is sufficient. We couldn't ask for anything else. So get into the Bible. Because in reading the Bible, we see God. 
we see how God sees things. And that will help shape us in our minds to see things the way God does. And in reading the Bible, we'll be better equipped to live the way Jesus did. To imitate somebody, you have to know them. And there is no better person to know than the person who did it all for us. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word that we've been able to study today. We thank you for the incredible work of healing this blind man's eyes that you did. And we thank you for an even greater healing of spiritual sight that you have given to all those who believe in you. We pray, Lord God, that you would grow us, that you would make our vision clearer and clearer, that we might be more and more thankful that you did it for us when we couldn't do it for ourselves. We thank you that you face the the road and the incredible challenges ahead, knowing what was ahead, yet still facing them for your good and for the good of your people, that you might win souls for yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.